So what we've been walking through the past couple weeks, I know we didn't have it last week, but the first couple weeks of April is this idea of goat. Again, we're not talking about animals, but what I want to try to press into and what we've been trying to press into is that this stands for the greatest of all time. And in the definition in and of itself, there can only be one greatest of all time. You can't have somebody um, that is the greatest of all time and is only good in one area. I know that's what we tend to use it in our culture is that we look at someone like Tom Brady and we say he's the goat at football. And so he is maybe in that sense of one area. But if you're talking just generally the greatest of all time, there can only be one. And what I've tried to press into with the qualities of who God is, he is the greatest of all time. His qualities in and of, in and of themselves make him the greatest of all time. We don't have to make a case for it. Well, I don't have to say, well, look at what God did here or, or look at who God is here. If you just look at who God is, you can see he is the greatest of all time. Trace through scripture if you want. Through creation and how he just says and speaks things into creation and then leads the Israelites after this downward spiral from creation into sin. Egyptians take him as slaves and God leads them out of Egypt and he, you can trace this whole story through, which brings to the focal point what we celebrated last week where he dies on a cross, which we'll look at today. And so we see through the greatest of all time, his qualities speak for themselves. And so I want to look at, as we've looked at his quality of love, we're going to look at his quality of sacrifice today, and we looked at last or a couple weeks ago his quality of forgiveness each and every one of these qualities kind of mixed together. They're not separate. So we don't look at love and say, well, that's just his love. And now we're looking at sacrifice today. So those, they all intertwine. His love, his forgiveness, and his sacrifice make him in part. This is just a small aspect of God, the greatest of all time. So when you think of sacrifice, I don't know what you think about. But I was um, looking this week and I don't know how many of you have seen the movie or probably maybe some of you have read the book, The Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know what the book, because I've never read the book, is like. But there's a clip in this movie that sometimes it can make me. I'm not a very emotional guy, but it kind of like gets me sometimes. It's this scene with Aslan. It's a scene with Aslan. He's the lion. Um, if you've never seen the, the, or the movie or you've never watched or read the book, you don't know anything about the Chronicles of Narnia. He's kind of like the God figure in C.S. Lewis's book. Because if you don't know, it, it is a basis off of Christianity. And so Aslan's like God. Um, and there's a character in there named Edmund. And I've had to read some of this because, again, I, haven't, I don't know every bit about it. Um, Edmund in there does a couple things that he probably shouldn't with the white witch, the evil one, if you want to say. He gets these things called Turkish Delights these candies, and, and he, he also just starts to get this power that he wants to, to gain power, and he's greedy, and he, he does all these things that he's not supposed to do in this perfect little place, in a sense, that they walk into in Narnia, and, and Aslan is the one that oversees this, and so he kind of commits, as they say, acts of treachery, or, or turns his back on, on the good people, if you want to say, in some ways, and so somebody has to rectify this. Somebody has to make things right again. He's either got to pay the price for what he's done, or somebody has to take his place. And so in this clip, as I'm watching, they have all these people surrounding this stone table. 
all these people, they're kind of weird looking people, but they got all these people surrounding this stone table. And here lies the great Aslan, tied up with ropes around his, his mouth, his body, and he lays there about ready to sacrifice himself so Edmund can be free. And they're all chanting around here, oh, he's supposed to be the great Aslan. He's supposed to be the one that saves us all. He's the one that's supposed to take us all out. And he's the one sitting there tied up. And you watch this scene unfold. And I think what gets me so much is he's laying there and they're all saying these things. And the, 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 the white witch is saying all her different stuff and how great Aslan is. But he couldn't take me down. And you get this pan as he's laying there. And his eyes go over to two of the girls that are watching off in the distance. And they're watching their friend about to be killed. And it pans back over in a second. She raises up this, uh, I believe it's like a knife, and kills Aslan. And in that moment, he's gone for that moment. He was willing to lay his life down to rectify the transgression. What a heroic thing to do. And I think sometimes we can look at something like sacrifice and we say, well, that's a great thing. And a lot of us can say things, but a word like sacrifice isn't all words. It has to be action as well. And I think sometimes when we look at, look at a quality like God, we say, okay, like sacrifice, you know, God, God helped out the poor. God, God ate with sinners. Okay, he sacrificed a lot in his life. And we can see some of these different things, but I think there's a pinnacle point in which it's not only just his words where he talks about us to sacrifice and how he's a sacrificial person, but we see the pinnacle of this, what we celebrated last week, and the ultimate sacrifice of his son. This is the greatest sacrifice where he puts not only his words to the test, but his actions where he says, I'm not just going to talk about sacrifice. I am going to be the sacrifice for each and every one of us. If I'm going to pour my life into somebody that's supposedly the greatest of all time, they have to be somebody great. I feel that has to be probably the same idea you're thinking about, is that if I'm going to give my life away to somebody, he's got to be somebody pretty great. And I want to show you, hopefully, through a quick trace through Scripture, that through his sacrifice, this makes him the greatest of all time. This makes him like the great Aslan, who's willing to lay his life down to make things right again. I need somebody who's going to produce some actions in their life. And that's exactly what God does in his and I think sometimes, as we unpack this idea, the goat sacrifices, um, we're going to be in a couple of different passages, but I feel like sometimes that's why we don't always get this accurate view, this great relationship with God, because we don't truly understand some of the qualities about him that make him so great. Like, we're not just talking about a sacrifice that helps out people long ago. We're not talking about a sacrifice that only covers some of your sins. We're not talking about a sacrifice that he only did for certain people 
and that some of us just don't have access to it. We're talking about a sacrifice that goes all through the ages until he returns again. That covers each and every one of our sins. That's got to be something pretty amazing. And so I take you to begin to Luke chapter 23. Just a couple verses here. And here's the scene, and then we're going to back up a little bit. It says, By this time it was noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the thick veil hanging in the temple was torn apart. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words he breathed his last. When the captain of the Roman soldiers handling the execution saw what happened, he praised God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when the crowd came to see the crucifixion, saw all that had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Okay, so here's the scene that's being painted at this moment. is, is Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying as an innocent man, paying the price for our sins. And in this moment is when he dies. This moment, he says, Father, I give you my spirit. In that moment, he dies. The veil torn in uh, the temple, and this Roman soldier is blown away. It's like this guy has to be innocent. Surely, surely this man was innocent. But how did we get here to this point where God sends his son to pay a price, even though he was innocent? To, to echo through the ages. How did we get here? Well, you have to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. And you, you can turn there if you want. I, I don't have a slide for it, but I'm just going to kind of walk you through. Genesis chapter 3. Here's what happens at the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 1, God starts speaking everything into creation. He starts creating the heavens and the earth and all the animals. He creates male and female in his image. And so all this stuff starts to unfold And there's this amazing unity happening between Adam and Eve and God. Why? Because there's no sin. There's no evil. We can't comprehend that because ever since we've been born, there's been evil a part of our own lives and in this world. We don't know what that's like. I mean, the closest thing I can think about, and there's still evil that happens in these places, but in the sense... It's like when you go away for a retreat, whether it's something like snow retreat or we do some other retreat where you go away and you're kind of away from the world and you get to focus solely on this relationship with God and building community with such great people. It's like that's a little tiny aspect that it might feel like to be where Adam and Eve are at. But we can't understand that because it's perfect unity. And God tells them, okay, here's the only rule that I have for you. This is one rule. I think sometimes we can... Look at that. We go, well, God, God gave them a huge list of things they weren't allowed to do. One thing. One thing. It's like your mom telling you, I have one thing for you to do today. Take out the trash. It's one thing you have to do today. God says the only thing you cannot do is there's this tree in the middle of the garden, knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat from that tree. Any other tree you can eat from. Any other there might be 50 trees there. I don't know, 75. They can eat from any other tree but this one tree. But just like everything in our lives, when we can't have it, we seem to want it more. And so they go over there, and Eve starts to kind of look at this tree, and it looks kind of interesting. And so then she sees the serpent. The serpent, you, you may know the story, serpent starts to entice her, and she says, wow, this kind of looks good. And so she grabs it and takes a bite. 
as her husband is standing here, watching, saying nothing, not trying to lead his wife in the right way, and he takes a bite. And in this moment, now sin has entered into the world because God gave them this command and they could either choose God's way or they could choose their way. And they chose their way. And now there's the sin that makes this separation between God and man in this moment. And you can keep reading on through the, the Old Testament as sin keeps going on. You see the first murder happen with Cain and Abel. Then you start to see them make this huge tower that they're going to reach God, the Tower of Babel. You see the Egyptians and the way they take Israelites as slaves and the way they treat them. And, and you see all of this crazy stuff. Read through Judges. People are getting killed with tent spikes. Getting boulders dropped on top of them. This is what's happening in Judges. There's sin penetrating everywhere because we wanted to choose our own way. And if we just listened to God, we wouldn't have had to be in the situation we were in. But in that moment when sin enters into the world, he realized somebody has to make a sacrifice. In order for this relationship to be fully restored, somebody has to sacrifice. And so all through the Old Testament, there was this system or process of sacrifices that they had to implement in their lives. They had to go out. They had to find the perfect sheep, goat, ram, whatever it was. No blemishes, no broken bones. They would have to kill this animal and sacrifice it. Burn it as a sacrifice to cover their sins. That's what they did all through the Old Testament. But that was not the end goal. God didn't want things to end there. He wanted to get rid of this system in a way for him to come down and not only cover that sacrifice, but be a part of our lives as well at the same time. And so Matthew comes along, Mark, Luke, John, all these Gospels, and we see what we celebrate here in about eight months, Christmas. Jesus is born. But why did Jesus come down? Because he understood that in order for this relationship to restore there had to be a sacrifice, but the problem is if we set it up the same way as the sacrifices were in the Old Testament, it had to be a perfect one. And now that sin has tainted our lives, entered into our hearts, we are not perfect. We cannot be perfect. So you need somebody who can go through this life and not sin. Because that's the blemish we have on our lives now. And so Jesus is born, and he comes on this earth, and God sends him to be this perfect sacrifice. But what's very interesting to me is, number one, I think what's so amazing about the sacrifice is that Jesus, or God, both interchangeably, they're innocent. There's nothing that they did that, that, that has to prove to you that they need to cover their own, their own sin. So he's innocent. Number two, he does it out of love. Why? Because he doesn't have to. He could have easily said, I told you one thing you were not allowed to do. You did it. And now for the rest of eternity, we have to live this way. But because of his overflowing love for you and for me, he sends a son out of love because he wanted to. And then he lives 33 years of his life 30 years, he just grows up. Last three years, he does his ministry. 
33 years he lives, and then there comes a moment where he's sitting at the Last Supper, and he looks around the table, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to hand me in and say that I was guilty of something that I'm not. And Judas does that exactly. Hands him over. He's arrested. Stands trial. Pilate finds him innocent, yet he still sends him to the death penalty of crucifixion. And in this moment, as I kind of think about it, if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, he, he gets this huge cross he's got to carry up this huge hill. can barely do it. He's been beaten a bajillion times before he even carries this cross. His, his, black, his back is split open. He's bleeding all over. He's got this crown of thorns, and he carries this thing all the way up to a hill where he's going to put that cross in the ground, and they're going to nail him, a nail in each hand like this, and they'll crisscross his feet and put one nail between both feet. A brutal sacrifice. But he gets nailed to this cross. And he hangs there for hours. See, a lot of times during crucifixion, it wasn't the nails that killed them, but they couldn't breathe. They couldn't breathe, so they would either die from suffocation or if they were bleeding internally, blood would fill their lungs. And so a lot of times, he couldn't just sit there and hang there. Like sometimes if you ever hung somewhere, um, you, you can like kind of breathe a little bit while you're just hanging there. I used to do, we used to try this thing where you duct tape yourself to the wall and you just be hanging there. Like you could just sit there and still kind of breathe. Each time he had to kind of raise himself up, which was more painful because of the nails that were in his arms and in his leg. Um, and so he had to lift himself up to breathe. And so he hung there for time after time, for hour after hour. And then eventually we're brought to this scene. That as you, as you look, I mean, just imagine right now, I'm not here, I'm not talking, but we're just watching the scene of your Savior. Because of his love for you, he hung there. He sent a sacrifice so that you could have life. He didn't have to. But because out of his love, he wanted to restore this relationship. Because you're the greatest thing in his life. He enjoys you more than anything. He couldn't be separated from you because his love overflows for you. And so he nailed, got nailed to a cross. Being the greatest sacrifice. Never sinned in his life never did anything wrong, yet he understands everything you go through. Hebrews 4.15, 4, 4, we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with us, but yet knows everything we go through. He lived life, but he did it perfectly. And then he died and was buried for three days, and then he rose again. And then as he ascended back to heaven, he said, I'm not going to leave you alone. He left his Holy Spirit with us. And so we see somebody that's so generous, so kind, so loving, bridge the gap again that we created in the first place. You want to talk about a sacrifice that will echo through time? This is a sacrifice. This is what makes him so great. It's not because he had to. It's not because it made him look honorable. It's not because he just wanted to help a few people out. He didn't care if only one person 
accepted his sacrifice, he was going to do it anyways because he has a love that cannot be controlled. You want to talk about the greatest of all time. you got to look at his sacrifice. you got to look at what he did for you and for me. And so I close with this. Um, there's a movie out there as well, just like the Chronicles of Narnia, um, called Lone Survivor. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it in the sense of, like, go home and watch it. it, it it's it's an interesting um, war movie. Um, but what happens is there's these six guys who get sent in on this mission to take out this guy who's part of the Taliban. You're supposed to, they were supposed to take out this guy. And so they come in, and they get sent, kind of dropped in on this ridge right around the village that they're looking that this guy is supposedly supposed to be at. So they're taking their time. They're moving very slow. They know that the Taliban can be sneaky and hide in trees, hide in caves, all do these different things. And so they're trying to be very careful in how they navigate this ridge, getting into a position where they're able to kind of set up shop a little bit and be able to take this person out that they're supposed to take out. There's six of them. And so a couple things happen. There's this guy that's walking along with his sheep um, kind of towards the beginning, middle of the movie. Um, he, he kind of starts freaking out. He's not an American. He's part of the village that they're in. And so this guy um, thinks might be working with the Taliban in one way or another because he's kind of skeptical. And so they kind of tie these guys up to make sure they don't go run down and tell um, Taliban that they're there and they're going to take him out and overthrow the whole plan of why they're supposed to be there. And so, um, But one of them gets away. One of the guys gets away, gets untied, runs down the hill all the way. And he tells them. So all of a sudden, there's this big battle scene for the rest of the movie because the Taliban then make their way up to the mountain where these guys are camping out. And all this battle keeps going back and forth, and you start seeing one by one. It goes from six to five to four. And after about the fourth one or the the fifth one, there's an amazing scene. Mike Murphy's his name. I don't know the actor who plays him, but Mike Murphy's his name. He's a real person. You can look it up. Um, gets in this spot where he knows that they need backup. They need backup. They're not going to make it out. There's too many of them and not enough of the Americans to fight them off. And so they need to call somebody in to be able to get backup for, for them to get out. And so he takes it upon himself to be the sacrifice to get them help. And so they're kind of pinned between these two rocks, and he looks up a little bit, and there's a little ridge. They can't get signal on their little phone. They don't have cell phones. It's these military phones. And so he's like, I've got to get up on this ridge so that I can make a call to base to get them to send back up. So he starts making it up this way. The different soldiers don't want him to go up because they know what's going to happen. He's putting himself right in harm's way. But he didn't care. And so he navigates through the rocks, and they cover fire for him. And he gets all the way to the ridge. And he gets on the edge, and he kind of leans down, and he dials in, and he says, we need help, and he tells them where they're at. And that's all he can get out. And in that moment, he sets the phone down, gets up on his knees, and gets blasted with all these bullets. They end up getting back up, but only one makes it out. And he was willing to climb all the way through these rocks, even if it was just one person who made it out because he knew somebody may have to be sacrificed so that the others can go free and God 
looked at each and every one of us as we're in our sin, and he sees the hill up there. And he said, somebody's got to make it up there. Somebody's got to climb the hill and pay a price so that the rest can make it. God is the greatest of all time because of the sacrifice he was willing to pay for you and for me.